0: Well, we're in the book of 1 Samuel, we're in chapters 19 and 20 today, if you want to open up your Bibles, find that, we'll get to that in a few minutes. What I'd like to do first is teach you something about biblical narrative, or stories in the Old Testament, most of the Old Testament is stories, so let's learn a little bit about that, and I'm going to start by looking at how we write stories today, in our time. In modern novels, we learn a lot about characters through their thoughts, meaning authors tell us what people are thinking. Let me show you an example. A few months ago, I read a book called Outlaw, a novel of Robin Hood. And it's written, it's fiction, of course, but it's written by Alan Dale. Now, Alan Dale is a close friend of Robin Hood. And Alan is writing in his old age, and he's going to mention a person named Marie, who is his daughter-in-law. So here's... A few sentences from that novel. Marie, again, this is Alan's words. Marie has become bitter, silent, and thrifty. So she has decreed. No chamber fires in daylight unless it rains. Meet, but once a week. In my melancholy state, I cannot find the will to oppose her. Now, that's us getting access into this guy's thoughts. It's what he thinks about himself, he's melancholy, he's too weak to oppose his daughter-in-law, and he's even given us access into her thoughts, at least what he thinks she feels, that she's bitter. So you might say, if you like reading, well, Ron, that's fiction and the Bible is real life, real history, so maybe not a great parallel, Well, let me give you one more from modern day history writing or story writing, and this will be from a biography of Winston Churchill. Churchill thought that fears were often the sources of Stalin's brutal aggressiveness. Now, that's no different than my Robin Hood novel. That biographer is telling us what Churchill thinks. In fact, in other parts of that biography, you'll read phrases like, Churchill cared about fill-in-the-blank, or Churchill did not care about fill-in-the-blank. Whether novel or history writing, in modern times we do this all the time. We tell you what people are thinking. So let's switch now to Old Testament narrative. Sometimes in the Bible, books like 1 Samuel, we read things like this we're told what Saul thinks, but it's rare. Far more often, we do get to learn about what people think, characters like Saul and David, but we learn that through their actions. Or through their words. So we're going to call this two levels of learning about characters in the Bible. That primary level is going to be learning about characters through their actions and their words. We're going to call this an extension because it really is. Our words and our actions are extensions. It's what's on the inside, our thoughts, our dreams, our desires showing itself through those two areas, actions and words. Since we were in the story of David and Goliath a few weeks ago, let me go there, 1 Samuel chapter 17, and let's look at that as an example of this main way that the author is going to tell us about what people think. So, chapter 17, starting at verse 45. David said to the Philistine, you come to me with the sword and with the spear and with the javelin. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Now, do we know what David is thinking? Yes. By all means, yes. How do we know that? Because of this speech, because of his words. We know that David trusts in the Lord and not in things, not even in weapons that he has handy. So, once again, in the Bible, how do we learn about characters? Through their actions and through their words. Now, there's a secondary level in which we learn about characters as well in books like 1 Samuel. And this secondary level, we're going to call the level of associations. In other words, what happens when the author, really God himself, shows us a character like a Saul or a David and then associates with that character something like Um, friends, or a place? What if David is often found in the same place? Or a piece of clothing or an object that could tell us something about that character? We're going to look at an example of that in a minute, namely the spear of Saul. So this is an object, Saul's spear, and it's often associated with Saul. Now, if it only happened once in the text... Only one time we read that Saul gets angry and he sees, oh, there's a spear leaning against the wall. I'm going to grab that and use it in my anger to attack somebody. We wouldn't make a big thing out of it. But what we'll see in a few minutes is that we read about Saul's spear quite a bit in the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to see that it's always by his side. The author wants us to see that, to visualize it, to imagine it. Saul doesn't go anywhere without a spear. Why? because it's going to tell us something about Saul's character. All right, let's do our little review, and then we'll look at the spear. We're in 1 Samuel. The main characters, aside from God, are Saul, king of Israel, Saul's son Jonathan, next in line to be king. God didn't really say that, but that's the way things worked everywhere in the ancient Near East. The son of the king would be king. And then we have David, Who started as a stranger to Saul and Jonathan, but then quickly became first a harp player for Saul, think guitar player, musical worship leader, ministering to Saul's spirit emotionally and spiritually. Then an armor bearer, which turned into a warrior or a soldier, which turned into a commander of troops for Saul. Third and finally, Saul's son-in-law, we saw that last week. Saul gives David his daughter in marriage. So over the years, David has gone from a stranger to very much a part of Saul's house and his court. As we saw last week, Saul has become jealous of David, even to the point of wanting to kill him. And interestingly, as Saul grows in his jealousy of and hatred for David, Saul's son Jonathan Has a bond with David and grows in his love and respect and admiration for David. This love from Jonathan probably means three things. First and foremost, a commitment, even a political commitment to David, acknowledging David is the next king and not even his father, and certainly not himself, Jonathan. Second, it does have an emotional aspect to it. We'll see that today. It's not purely political. And then third, it probably means that Jonathan knows that David is God's choice, God's anointed. And so if Jonathan loves and fears God himself, Jonathan will love and respect and be drawn toward David as God's anointed. So final bit of review, we saw this last week at the beginning of chapter 18, just a few verses in. Jonathan does this odd thing of giving David his robes and his armor and his weapons. And, as we saw last week, that's highly symbolic. That meant that Jonathan recognized that he, Jonathan, was no longer the crown prince, the next in line to the throne. David was God's choice. So, let's put in practice this idea of, we can learn about a character through something that is associated with him repeatedly. Uh, And let's look at the context of this covenant. The covenant is going to be, What Jonathan makes with David, that's what we're going to build up to this morning in chapter 20. The context is Saul and his jealousy, and part of that context is an object found in Saul's hand, again, repeatedly, and that object is the spear. We read about that one place of many in chapter 19, starting at verse 9. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. Can of get the idea that it's always there? And David was playing the lyre, And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. But he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. This is actually one of three times that Saul gets so angry, he takes his spear. It's going to be right there. He doesn't have to go look for one in the next room. And tries to kill someone. Two times it's David. The third time it's his own son Jonathan. That Saul tries to kill. The sword. And the spear. Those two weapons. Are found repeatedly in First and Second Samuel. And they're going to be symbolic. Uh, in fact let's look at one of those places. We already looked at it. And that's back in chapter 17. The David and Goliath story. Let me read to you those verses again. this time. Listen for those two terms, sword and spear. What we're going to see is that in David's speech, he bookends his speech with the two terms. You'll see it at the beginning. Bookending means it comes back at the end as well. So let me read verse 45 again, chapter 17. David said to the Philistine, You come to me with the sword and with the spear and with the javelin. Those two are synonyms. They're kind of the same thing. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Skip to verse 47, the end. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. You read through First and Second Samuel. Those two items, those two weapons, sword and spear, come up in relation to the Philistines. They're associated with the Philistines. In a passage completely outside of this, chapter 17, you'll see those two things mentioned as the Philistines have them. Here in chapter 17, they're associated with whom? Goliath. What will be associated with Saul? I've given you a heads up on what we'll see, and that's the spear. But what is associated with David, what is his weapon? It's a sling and stones. It's not a sword. It's not a spear. In fact, it's really not even a sling and stones, is it? It's really God's name, God's presence, his sovereign power and authority. That's David's real weapon. And Jonathan, we're not going to go into this today, but if you read about Jonathan, his weapon also is not a sword or a spear. It's a bow. So you've got this neat contrast between Two weapons that stand for man trusting in himself, sword and spear, and then a contrast with David and Jonathan. Before we look at a couple more verses where this spear is held in Saul's hand all the time, let's look at what this spear looks like. The spear would have had a pretty wicked blade at the end of it. We're talking razor sharp, pretty thick, not a small point to an arrowhead, for instance. Now, in this picture, you'll see another metal object that does look like an arrowhead. Uh, That's going to be at the other end of a long wooden shaft, at least in nicer spears and Saul would have had a nicer spear. He's king of Israel. What did the whole spear look like? Well, pretty long, higher than the height of a tall man. And in this picture, too, you see that the bottom of the spear has this metal point to it. Why did they do that? Well, if you want to stick a spear in the ground... You don't want to hold it in your hand anymore. This is the best way to do it. We would tend to think, oh, if your blade is on top, you invert it 180 degrees, and then you thrust that into the earth. But that would have dulled the blade. That wasn't a good practice. So again, nicer spears had this bottom point, put it in the ground. Second purpose for this was if your spear got broken in battle, whatever end or half you're left with is still a weapon because they both have points. So nicer spear, Saul would have had a nicer spear, not a junky one. And this is what it would have looked like. Um, Okay, back to the book of Samuel. In 1 Samuel, the word spear occurs 18 times. Now, that may or may not be significant. We've got to look at other books. How often does that word occur in the Old Testament? But in all the other books of the Bible, spear only occurs a handful of times meaning literally I can count them on one hand. In the book of Job, that's a long book. Spear occurs twice. In the book of Psalms, that's a long book. Spear occurs three times. In the book of Isaiah, wow, that's a really long book. Spear occurs only once. In First Samuel, 18 times. Why? Many of those are Saul and his spear. Let's look at a couple of verses. And we've already seen chapter 19 where Saul tries to kill David, and I mentioned there are three, Two other times when Saul takes spear in hand and tries to kill somebody. Let's put those aside and see some uh, regular verses. Maybe not as significant as trying to kill a family or relative. 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered. So little pause here in 1 Samuel 22. uh, David knows that Saul is trying to kill him. He is fleeing, separated himself, hiding away from Saul. And here we're reading, Saul gets word, at least he thinks he has word, on where David and his little band is. So let me get back into the verse, verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. So again, he's not in battle but whenever he's just hanging around, his spear is there with him. One more example, although we could give ten of these. A few chapters later, 1 Samuel chapter 26, verse 7. David and Abishai went to the army by night, meaning Saul's army. And there lay Saul, sleeping within the encampment, with gets what is right next to him, his spear, stuck in the ground at his head, and Ebner and the army laying around him. Do you get the idea? Saul always has the spirit with him. He does. Not just in battle. I think what the author first Samuel is showing us is that Saul lives in a state of anxiety. After all, he's got bodyguards around him, people that have weapons. He doesn't need to do this. Uh, but Saul is no longer trusting in the Lord God of Israel. He's trusting in his own strength, perhaps not even trusting in the bodyguards that are around him. Maybe think of it this way. There's a guy in my neighborhood that likes walking. Good for him. And he does it every day, and he walks with a stick. And I'm not talking about a walking stick. You know what a walking stick is. It's lightweight. You poke the ground with it at every step. I guess it kind of helps to exercise your arms a little bit, or if you're climbing up the it helps you with stability. Not a walking stick. This guy, my neighbor... Um, has a stick that's about two and a half, three feet long, about an inch thick, and it's hardwood. It's not lightweight. And it doesn't touch the ground. He swings it as he walks. Have you seen guys that do this? I think there are a few reasons for doing this. I won't go into all of them, but one of them might be if there is a dog that's loose and is getting territorial and wants to attack my friend, the neighbor. My friend has got something to defend himself with. Here's what would be odd. What if my friend took that stick with him everywhere he went? Wouldn't that be kind of odd? So he goes into the grocery store to buy groceries, and it's a stick. You can't hide it because it's three feet long, one is thick. Um, He goes into McDonald's to have lunch. He brings the stick with him. He comes to church here at Desert Springs Sunday morning. He's got the stick with him, and it's leaning next to him in his seat. That would be odd. Now, you might say, Ron, maybe kings in ancient Israel were different. Maybe it was okay that they carried something like this at all times and I'd say no it wasn't normal kings didn't do this they wore weapons in battle or they wore them for ceremonies so they'd put on a real fancy sword in a ceremony but they didn't wear weapons all the time and if they did pick a particular day in which nothing big was happening no ceremony and they just wanted to wear something they'd wear a sword why? because you can put it on a belt and keep your hands free you wouldn't drag a spear around So, not only to our ears, but to the ears of Israelites thousands of years ago, this seemed odd, and it's telling us something about Saul's character. So, to summarize, the spear and the sword as well in the book of Samuel are symbols of man trusting in himself. What David trusts in is the Lord, his name, his presence, and the Lord's sovereign plan for David's future. For David's life. So next, let's look at the care that Jonathan feels and pledges to David. This is going to be point two in your bulletin. The care behind the covenant. David and Jonathan again have spent a number of years together. And the book of 1 Samuel describes Jonathan's commitment toward David in a number of different ways. We'll look at two of those this morning. The first, briefly heard about this last week, is the word love. Let's go back to 1 Samuel chapter 18, and we'll look at the beginning of that chapter, verse 1, in fact. So chapter 18, verse 1, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Skip to verse 3. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. The covenant that Jonathan makes with David is described in three different places in 1 Samuel. This is the first one right here in chapter 18. In none of the three places do we get the whole text of the covenant, so we can't read literally word for word what it was that Jonathan pledged to David. We get phrases here and there, and we get three good descriptions. Second description is in chapter 20. We'll hit that in a few minutes. It's really our chapter for this morning. And then third in chapter 23 we read about this covenant. We're not going to look at that today. And chapter 23 might be a reaffirmation of chapter 20. So let's go back to that word love. Jonathan loved David. And Let's admit, this sounds a little bit odd uh, between two guys to use that word, guys that aren't family members. I mean, it's totally normal for a father to say to a son, I think I said it to Jared a week ago, I love you. And for a son to say that to a father. For guys that are good buddies, I don't think they use the word love all that much. I think it's possible but it's not all that common. I think it's more common for ladies. Um, Saw a young lady in church on Facebook a couple weeks ago, I won't say her name, and she's got her arm around her best friend, and the caption is something like, love my bestie, or, you know, great day spent in the mountains with your girlfriend. Now, guys usually don't do that. They don't say, love your bestie, and they don't say, great day with your boyfriend. It's just not a part of our culture. So the question is, was it a part of their culture to do that, to use that word love? And the answer is yes. Um, And we've got to realize that love in Hebrew is first and foremost a commitment, and secondarily an emotion. So it's really the opposite of our English word love. For us, in our culture, it's first and foremost an emotion, and second, it may or may not be a commitment. When I was in high school, like a sophomore, I started into my first uh, kind of dating relationship. My first real girlfriend was a sophomore and a little bit of junior year in high school. Um, and that was my first experience of me being a couple with somebody else, um, with the girl. And I remember this love note I wrote to her, and I used this sentence, I will love you forever. <laughs> I wish I could forget that. Somebody could excise it from my mind but that's what I wrote to this girlfriend. Now that's a great example of something that's really 100% emotion and 0% thoughtful contemplation of commitment because it certainly didn't happen. I didn't end up marrying that girl. So again, in Hebrew, it's the opposite. Commitment first, emotion comes second. Uh, Here's an example of that. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 16. But all Israel and Judah loved David. Now, every man and woman in Israel and Judah didn't know David, at least on a personal level, meaning every man and woman hadn't met David face-to-face, spent time with him, conversed with him. So this is not primarily an emotional love here. This is a commitment. Now, we can also imagine that all Israel and Judah liked David. So there's some emotions there, too. But first and foremost, it means they want him as king. There is a second response we'll look at from Jonathan to David, that shows Jonathan's commitment, and this is even a little bit odder, and this is that these two guys actually kiss each other. So before we look at that verse, it's gonna be in chapter 20, verse 41, toward the end of chapter 20. I've gotta set up the context. Uh, Jonathan and David have devised a series of tests, so to speak, by which they will see if Jonathan's father, Saul, the king of Israel, is really angry at David Hateful towards David and wanting to kill or take David's life. At the end of chapter 20, we're in the last of that series, and here's what the two have agreed on. David says, I'm going to be absent from the supper meal for two days in a row. And it's kind of a special two days because it's the end of a month, it's a minor feast day. And David is saying, I'm not going to ask permission from King Saul, I'm just going to be gone, absent. You, Jonathan, watch and see what his response is. So Jonathan says this. Hey, I'm on board with you. I get it. Let's do that. Let's meet on the morning of the third day, after you've been absent for two days, at this field. Um, You hide yourself downfield off in the woods behind a rock. I'm going to bring a servant boy and shoot some arrows. So, David, do this. If after I shoot my arrows... I yell to the boy, that arrow you're looking for, it's off to the side. Go look for it off to the side. Then that's a signal for my father didn't get furious. He was disappointed, but didn't get furious. And I don't think he wants to kill you. I think you're going to be okay. In which case, we could imagine David coming out from hiding and talking with Jonathan, and they go back to the palace. Signal number two, Jonathan says, but if I say to the servant, that last arrow you're looking for, it's beyond you. Keep going. you got to go farther downfield. Then, David, I'm really saying the same thing to you. Get out of here. Go farther away. Get out of town. And don't even come and talk to me. What's odd is that when we go through this test, Jonathan indeed does give the second signal, which means David really should get out of there. And David, because these guys have this strong male bond, this friendship, that is not romantic in any way, but a great male friendship, David has somewhat of a risk to his life by coming out and talking to Jonathan after the servant has left. So now that you've got the context, here's the verse. Chapter 20, verse 41. As soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept for one another, David weeping the most. So again, if love looked a little bit odd, the use of that word, This looks even odder to us in our time here in America. Could it be that in the Bible, this was completely acceptable and an even natural expression of respect or admiration or affection? The answer is yes. Let me give you one or two examples. Genesis chapter 33. Maybe don't turn there, but just let me read it for you. Esau, in Genesis 33 verse 4, ran to meet him, The hymn is Esau, his brother. They've not seen each other for a number of years. And embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Here's another example. Later in the book of Genesis. Joseph's story, chapter 45, verse 15. And he, Joseph, kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. Fact out of 35 times that the Hebrew verb for kiss occurs in the whole old testament only four of those are romantic or sexual in nature so what does that mean roughly 30 are just expressions of friendship nothing to do with romance so i heard a great example of this just a couple weeks ago i've got to share it with you you'll know that we have a missionary couple in france i'm just going to call them clark and katie but that's not their real names Um, and they arrived there a few weeks ago well They visited a church a few weeks ago, and before the service started, Clark is in the basement hanging up the coats for the family, and Clark turns around, and there's a young lady, French, who says something in French, he can't quite make it out, and she leans in toward his face. So Clark is thinking, okay, this is pretty odd here. So Clark thinks, the coat rack is behind me, she must be leaning in to look at something to Gets something out of a pocket of her coat or something like that. So our friend Clark leans away, and then he leans off to the side thinking, you know, she's going to keep going straight and miss him. Her face starts following his, getting closer and closer and closer, like, you know, two inches away, way inside of his personal space. Meanwhile, Katie, Clark's wife, Katie, is about 10 feet away, amused by the whole thing, because Katie knew that what the lady said in French was a little kiss, a little kiss, and she simply wanted to plant what's probably just an air kiss on each of Clark's cheeks as a welcome for the church. So when I heard that, I thought, wow, what a great illustration that in our world there are dozens of countries where people can kiss and it has nothing to do with romance. It's a sign of friendship. In fact, in some countries it's only appropriate for men to kiss men and women to kiss women. It shouldn't be done cross-gender. But apparently in France, you know, anything goes. So it was fine for them to try that. All right, so context of 19 and 20, those two chapters in First Samuel, you've got Saul, the king of Israel, hating David, wanting to take his life. The spear symbolizes that, along with a number of other things. Jonathan is willing to give up everything, his throne, even his life, because he knows that David is God's anointed, God's chosen one. This leads us to our third and last point, the covenant itself. So this brings us to chapter 20. Chapter 20 is pretty significant. Why? For many reasons. Here's one. Jonathan and David talk to one another. And it's actually the only chapter in the Bible where Jonathan and David converse with each other. We get to listen in on their conversation. Now, They have probably had hundreds or thousands of conversations. But in God's providence, this is the one that we get to listen to. So there's something significant going on here. Let's dive in and start reading. So chapter 20, starting at verse 12. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David... Jonathan's talking to David, so it's basically toward you. Shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. That I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. I want you to notice a couple things about this. First, although Jonathan gives an expectation, kind of a request, it's toward the end of his speech when he says, May your steadfast love always be toward me and my house. Before that, Jonathan has a commitment to David, and this is really the core of what covenant is, a commitment to the other person. So let's read that in chapter 20, verse 13. Jonathan says, Should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he was with my father. So Jonathan proclaims two things here. First, he tells David, I'll tell you if my father wants to kill you. Saul's going to see that as treacherous or treasonous. Second, look at the end of verse 13 where Jonathan says, May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. It's a very significant phrase in 1 Samuel. The Lord be with you. Jonathan doesn't use that all over the place. It's not like he meets 20 people in a day and he says to each one, Oh, may the Lord be with you as some kind of a greeting or, or farewell. It's used of God's anointed, and it's the way of showing us that Jonathan has changed from acknowledging his father is king, God's choice, to David as king, and God's choice. Just as we had the covenant described in three different places, chapter 18, chapter 20, chapter 23, we won't look at 23, but we're looking at 20 right now. This change that Jonathan has had Leaving an allegiance to his father, starting an allegiance to David, is described in different places. You remember chapter 18, last week? It was described there in Jonathan taking off his robes and armor and weapons. Here it's described by that phrase, the Lord be with you, as he was at one time, but is no longer with my father. So, this passage shows us the most important dynamic of covenant. We're going to call it dynamic one, and it's commitment to the other person. This is the main thing that covenants are about, and this is what makes them different than our modern-day contracts. So a covenant is about a commitment or faithfulness to the other party. Think for a minute of modern-day contracts. Contracts are all about me. They're about protection. They're about self-protection. Take buying a house. We write contracts when we buy houses, right? Uh, The seller wants that contract. Why? Because when the seller takes the house off the market, the seller wants to make sure that money comes into his or her account. If I'm the buyer, I want that contract. Why? Because if I pay money, I don't want the original owner to come back six months down the road and say, Ron, get out of my house. This is my house. It's been my house for 20 years. Get out. I want to have proof that ownership has changed and I own the house. Contracts are all about the self. They're self-ish. Now, that's not to say they're bad. They're necessary. But they're focused on the self, our rights, our protection, our benefits, our assurances. And covenants, at least those initiated by God, or in this case between two men that are very godly, are quite different. There's a second dynamic to covenant, and that is cost to self. Jonathan, I've said this a couple times, is so committed to David that it may cost him everything, his well-being, his throne, perhaps even his life. In fact, look back at verse 24 in chapter 20. Jonathan says, if I am still alive, he's thinking short-term, and if I'm alive even a couple years down the road, Show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. That kind of commitment where Jonathan risks his own life reminds me right away of a verse in the New Testament. Let me read it for you. Maybe don't turn there, just listen. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 14, verse 26 if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, wow, did you hear that word hate in that verse? Does Jesus literally mean that we're supposed to hate family members? Let me tell you the answer to that is no. Okay, Ron, why did he use the word hate then? Well, let me tell you part of the background to this. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew people often liked to speak and write in extremes. As Americans, we tend to qualify things and and talk too long. I know I talk way too long at times and put qualifying phrases in all over the place. But this Hebrew way of speaking and talking was often very concise to the point in extremes. So instead of saying what we would call preference, I prefer A over B. I like a little bit more than B, and here's why. The Hebrew might just say, I love A, I hate B. But not hate in our sense of the word hate. That's a big part of what's going on, but you might say, why didn't Jesus just say, love me more than family members? He wants a shock value. The idea here is not Jesus is here, a husband or wife or parent or child is just a notch below Jesus, then maybe it's, fellow church members, then maybe it's me, then maybe it's the boss at work, then maybe it's my neighbor. There's no spectrum. There's only Christ. And in fact, the Bible tells us that the most healthy and joyful family relationships, which of course God is all about, are found when we worship Christ and Christ alone, enfolded in that worship of Jesus, not seen as something separate from our worship of Christ. Luke, as a gospel writer, likes these extremes. He wants to make this point that allegiance is solely to Christ. It doesn't get shared with the Roman Empire. It doesn't get shared with Jewish laws, if you worship those laws in and of themselves. It doesn't get shared with Greek philosophies of that day. It doesn't even get shared with family. Family is strong in our day. It was even stronger in ancient times. If you were a poor family, there is one thing you are assured of as parents, Your children will always be loyal to you no matter what. And vice versa. As children, you could be poor as dirt, but you're assured of one thing. As I grow old, my parents are always going to be there for me no matter what. That is the first and foremost allegiance that we have. So Jesus, in his wording, is trying to crash that out of people's minds and put a proper view of kingship and God in its place. So Matthew just to show you that Jesus uses different wording in different contexts, in a different speech, in a different day, in a different time of teaching for Jesus. Matthew words the same thought this way. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I kind of like Luke's version, that day that Jesus taught, a little better because of that shock value. But Matthew isn't. Out for this primary allegiance, Matthew has other goals in mind that are a little bit different than Luke's. But Matthew, as well as other verses, show us that Jesus does not mean hate in our sense of the word. So what I want to do now, we're done with our notes, I want to pray and offer some ideas for application in the prayer. And hopefully, God's Spirit can use that text in 1 Samuel 20 Jonathan's words to David in our lives as we look at our covenant with Christ that he initiated, he bought, he paid for. So bow your heads and pray with me, please. Father, help us to see that duty and delight go together. Help us to see that in Jonathan's attitude and words toward David, that there was a faithfulness, but a joy he took in that faithfulness. May that be our attitude as we contemplate our covenant with you and for many of us in this room, our covenant with a husband or a wife. In fact, help us to see if we gravitate too much toward duty and not delight or too much toward freedom and joy and happiness and and not thinking about duty or faithfulness or long-term commitment. So may you help us analyze our covenants with you and, again, for many of us with our wives. In fact, we sang, God, and we thank you that we could sing that last song before the sermon, Be Thou My Dignity, there's the commitment, you my delight, that both are there in place in our covenant with you. High King of Heaven, there's the commitment, my treasure you are, there's the delight. Help us to see the cost of covenant with Christ, one that he bought, initiated, and paid for. That Jesus said, there are times when we will have crosses to bear. And Father, we think of these names I made up, Clark and Katie, real people that soon will be in a part of the world in which Christians are indeed persecuted. May we support them in many ways and be one with them in this effort to reach out to the hard places of the world. May we, like Jonathan, be willing to give up everything for the great goodness of Christ. And help us to see that our commitment to Christ is not on a spectrum, that uh, family is not a close second, but that it is Christ and Christ alone, and that that allows us to have more joy in our family members and to commit to them in better, and more joyful ways. Father, use these verses, these words from Jonathan to David, as we contemplate the meaning of covenant throughout this day and tomorrow as we get up in our workday, whether we work outside of the home or in the home. By your spirit, use your words to make us more Christ-like. Amen. Let's stand together and sing this prayer as we respond. Take my